Well, today we're beginning our third week in uh, our series that we've entitled Be Encouraged. And uh, we're doing a study these weeks in 2 Corinthians. And I just want to remind you of uh, your assignment uh, each week. The first part of your assignment is to read 2 Corinthians every week. Now, there's 13 chapters, so you can read two chapters a day. And then on Sunday, read chapter 13. That's one way to do it. Or if you want to do it all in one reading, it takes you about 30 to 35 minutes to read it, uh, depending on how quickly you read. But that's the first part of your assignment. The second part is even more important. And the second part of your assignment is this. Pay attention. Pay attention to how God is encouraging you. Pay attention to how God wants you to encourage others. Pay attention. Watch out for what God wants to do in your life. And believe me, when you are paying attention, you see things that you might have missed in another way. So that's your assignment. Read uh, 2 Corinthians uh, uh, each week and uh, 2 Corinthians 1 to 13 and then pay attention. So um, we want you to encourage others because God has encouraged you. So let's review very quickly. Uh, The first week, two weeks ago, we talked about how that God wants to comfort and encourage each and every one of you. He wanted to comfort and encourage the church at Corinth, a church that he established, a church that he stayed with for 18 months, the longest that he was with any church in the New Testament. And, uh, and yet, after he had left and gone to plant other churches, he got kind of sideways. The church kind of thought that he should have been doing some things that they promised to do, and there was some back and forth. And, and Paul basically wrote back to, hey, listen, guys, uh, if I've offended you, I'm sorry, but listen, my heart is full. My heart is full of love for you. And I want to encourage you and bless you. And the reason I want to encourage and bless you is because God has encouraged and blessed me. So I want to pay it forward. So that's what I want to express to you, that if you receive the encouragement and blessing of God, which you all do, because you pay attention, right? And because you do, you want to extend that encouragement to others. So that was the first week. And then we ended that first week's message by saying we can rely on God's word for that. Why? Because, oh yeah, by the way, he raises from the dead, right? He raises people from the dead, his son and others. And so we know that we can rely on God. Then last week, we looked at Paul's words, uh, the ultimate yes, the ultimate yes. And Paul encourages us to say yes to him because he has said yes to us. Paul encourages us to say yes to each other as Christ followers because he has said yes to us. The ultimate yes. Say yes because you are forgiven. Yes, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, you have the assurance of your salvation. Yes, you can absolutely depend on the fact that I will always love you. Yes, you will live forever. Yes, yes, and yes. And yes, we can say that to each other because God's ultimate yes to us was in Christ Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what we looked at last week. Today we begin chapter 2 of our study, 2 Corinthians. And Paul's theme here is forgiveness. You heard uh, Becca refer to it. You heard Janine refer to it. Uh, We are called to be people of forgiveness. So I want to begin by telling you something that happened in my uh, first uh, pastoral ministry. Our first one is a lead pastor. 
So um, we had just graduated from North Park Seminary in 1978 in the, in the uh, spring, and I was to begin my first church that I was called to, Mount McGill Covenant Church in Spring Valley, California, a suburb of San Diego, and begin that August 1st of 19, uh, 1978. I was excited. 29 years old, uh, full of uh, spit and vinegar. I had all the things wired that I needed to do, and I knew everything in the Bible, and so I was ready to go. And uh, I came to a congregation, a relatively older congregation. Uh, We were across the street from a retirement community, Mount McGill Village Retirement Community. And so uh, the first Sunday was about 100 people. 50 of them were from the village, 50 from the neighborhood. And uh, we had a good first Sunday. And then that week we had our very first board meeting. Now back in those days, uh, we called them board meetings because they were incredibly boring. Uh, Now, today we call them cool stuff like FT and OT and all of that. But in those days, they were very, very boring. So we had our first board meeting. And so I went around the room, and I had mostly uh, uh, stern-looking older men. At least they seemed to appear that to me. And uh, and I said, well, introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit about you. So they each went around and introduced themselves. And I said, is that everyone? And they kind of looked around at each other. And I said, is someone missing? And they said, yes. Ed is missing. Ed. Well, where's Ed? Well, they kind of look around at each other again. Well, Ed, about six months ago, left his wife and he moved in with another woman. Left his wife and kids and moved in with another woman. I said, oh. Well, I said, um, uh, what have you done to uh, kind of address that situation? Have you gone to visit him? Have you gone to see him? Have you prayed with him? What have you done to rectify that? Oh, we thought we'd wait till the new pastor got here. <laughs> I'm 29 years old. I don't know. I, don't, I can't find the bathroom in this new church. And I'm supposed to fix this thing? So, so I, all I could do is do, you know, what I learned, the Matthew 18 thing. And, and so I took one of the, two of the elders with me, and we went and knocked on Ed's door, and I shared with him from Scripture and told him we want to love him and we want him to be back with his family and his kids, and he threw us out of his house. And for the next six months, we prayed for him. We tried to talk to him. We did everything. And finally, we just did what we felt like we had to do. We had to literally have a service of excommunication. For the only time in my ministry, I've ever had to do that. And, uh, and of course, the purpose of excommunication, you've got to remember, is not to punish somebody. And it's not to make them go away. The purpose is for them to feel the full weight of their sin, to repent, to come back to God, and come back to the church. Restoration is the purpose of that. Some people think, oh, this will be fun. Let's just kick somebody out of the church. No, that's not what it's about. It's about restoring them and lifting them back up. So we did what we needed to do. Over the months, we prayed for him. We talked to him. Finally, praise God, uh, Ed uh, confessed his sin. He confessed his sin to his wife. He reunited with his wife. They went to counseling And ultimately, we had him stand before the church and to profess his love for God, for his family, to ask for the forgiveness of the church, and he was restored fully in the ministry of the church. Isn't that a beautiful story? I wish that happened more often, but it doesn't because people are stubborn and they are willful in their sin. And But this particular case was one that I've I've always remembered because um, it's exactly the kind of thing that Paul is talking about in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians. It's exactly, the same kind of scenario was happening in the church at Corinth. One of the members of the Corinthian church caused Paul a great deal of pain and sorrow. 
Now we're not sure who this man was. It could have been, could have been written about in 3 Corinthians, which is lost. No one knows what happened to that. But most likely, most scholars believe that it's referring to the man that was referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's first letter written to the church. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians was written about 18 months later. So that's what they believe Paul is referring to. So let me read to you, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And um, we're going to start reading in your bulletins and on the screen you'll have verses 5 to 11. But let me pick it up uh, at verse 4. And uh, Paul is very disturbed by what's happening in the church. And he's heard criticism for himself. Remember, he's trying to reestablish his apostolic authority. Uh, But this is what he wrote, uh, beginning at verse 4. I wrote that letter, 1 Corinthians, in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. I I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. So that first letter of Corinthians, it was all about, you know, fixing what was wrong in the church, but also extending his love to the church. And he said, man, something happened back then that you're facing right now that needs to be fixed. Verse five, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Uh, That was just because Paul was away when this all took place, right? Most of you, verse six, most of you opposed him and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome with discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. Verse 9, I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Well, Paul is saying here, hey, beware. This idea of unforgiveness, this idea of not forgiving this brother, this is one of the devil's schemes, and this is dangerous territory. So Paul is talking about this thing that happened, some egregious sin, something that was not an easy fix. So there was some kind of cancer in the body that this man uh, brought on. So he's saying, listen, you need to cut him out. You need to excommunicate him. Remember, not for the purpose of punishment, for the purpose of restoring this lost brother, ultimately so that he can experience the fullness of his salvation once again. So what was this sin? Well, again, as I said earlier, most scholars believe that it was the very thing that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, let me read you that. And I'll begin uh, verses 1 to 5 to hear what uh, Paul is referring to. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going in among you. Some of you just woke up. I could could feel that, you know, like that. You can't talk about that in church. Well, it's the Bible. Figure it out. Something that even pagans don't do. Okay, this is something really bad. Even the pagans outside the church, they don't even do this. Okay, what is that? Everybody's listening now, right? Something, even pagans. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Now, there's a lot of sins, you know, but this has got to be one of the top 10. You know, this is just not good. Your mother-in-law, come on. You know, come on, fellow, whatever you're doing, this is just not right. Verse two, you are so proud of yourselves 
but you should be mourning and sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in the spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting uh, of the church. I will be present with you in spirit and you will, and so will the power of the Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that the sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. So this guy is really out there, okay? This guy makes you feel good about your sin, right? Because your sins aren't that bad, right? And, it's, and this guy is really something. But the church disciplines him finally. Uh, see, remember, this is not punishment. This is about helping someone feel the full weight of their sin so that they can ultimately repent and be restored to the body of Christ. So finally, the church disciplines this man. He becomes penitent. And now some, maybe many in the church, don't want him back. They said, okay, we don't want this guy back. You know, I'm going to hide my mother-in-law. You know, I just don't want him, you know, anywhere near us. But Paul says, listen, it's time to forgive. It's time to forgive. This is really an impressive passage of scripture. Now, around this area, there's a lot of teaching that needs to happen. And uh, not all today, but... uh, This idea of forgiving, because immediately your head goes to, well, did he repent? Well, we find out that he did. Well, is he dangerous? Well, we're not sure about that. And so there's all kinds of these questions that go along with that. So Paul, a little bit later in chapter 5, again back at 1 Corinthians, a little bit later in chapter 5, Paul expresses this idea of judgment. Because the first thing, when I said, uh, read about forgiving him, some of you are going to this place. He needs to be judged. And then some of you are going, ah, but the Bible says, don't judge lest you be judged. And so there's all this kind of tension. Do we judge the guy? Do we ignore him? Do we just hide our mother-in-law? What do we do with this guy? We're not quite sure what we're supposed to do. Are we supposed to judge him? We don't know. So Paul says, okay, I know what you're thinking. Listen to this. Verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 5. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. We are supposed to hold each other accountable, right? For our sin. That's what we do inside the church. We do that in order to restore them, not to punish them or to shame them. We do that to restore them. Now, Paul says something here that's really important. And we could do a whole series of messages on this one idea. And what Paul says is what the church for the last 1,700 years hasn't done a very good job with. What he says is, you're not supposed to judge the outside world. Well, Paul, are you kidding me? That's a Christian's favorite pastime. (laughs) We love to do that especially with politicians. We love to point to them and say, you guys are not living the way you should and you're not acting like us and you're not behaving like this. Do you know why they're not acting like us? Because they're not us. They're outside Jesus. Why do we think we should hold them accountable to the way we believe when they haven't signed off on the Bible or Christianity? We're not supposed to judge outsiders. What we're supposed to do is love them. We talked about that last week. 
Oh, but there's guy, there's these teenagers wear their pants down here and they've got tats and there's this politician and there's this guy. And yes, they're all doing bad stuff. That's what they do. People that aren't Christ followers, that's what they do. That's how they live. We are called to love them. We are called to love them until they ask you why. Okay? So it's not our job to judge the world outside. It's our job to hold each other accountable in here. Last week I talked to you about uh, my granddaughter, Elowen. Uh, that when she was two years old, her favorite word was what? No, that's right. Okay. Well, that same L, when she was, she's eight now, so she's much uh, better somewhat. And uh, uh, so, uh, but when she was two, we were outside playing and I was kind of watching the kids. Her brothers are older, so they're a little more responsible. But Ella, when she was, she was two or three years old, she started to run out into the street. And I yelled, Ella, you get back here, just like that. And boy, the, everybody jumped and and she stopped and she came running back to her mom crying baba screamed at me and everything you know what i'm willing to sacrifice that i'm willing to be mad at by my granddaughter i'm willing for not to like what i did because i saved her life and i would do it again now there might be better ways to do that but in that instant in that moment there was no other alternative sometimes we need to do that we need to go to that Ed let, that Ed guy, uh, the elder back in the day, and park in his driveway. They say, Ed, we're not leaving until you leave this woman and go back to your wife and repent. We're, 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 we're going to hold you accountable because you're our brother in Christ and we are called to hold each other accountable. So that's what Paul is talking about. We always prepared, always be prepared to forgive and restore. Always err on the side of grace but we must hold each other accountable. So let's talk about this big idea that we find in the first half of chapter two, this idea of forgiveness. We've got to get this right. This forgiveness thing, as Christians, we throw it out there, but we've got to get this right. I mean, all of us have a little bit of um, grace in us and a little bit of, 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 of law in us, right? In fact, most of us, I want to receive grace, but I want to make sure you obey the law. <laughs> so, you know, but Jesus said, I'm 100% grace and I'm 100% law. Anyway, we've got to get this part right. So let me give you some principles. If you have your sermon notes, you'll know that there's a place to fill in. I know normally uh, David didn't have you fill in stuff, but this was too important, I thought, to not have you actually write it down. That's when you remember stuff. And on the back of it, you'll be intimidated by a long list of things, but we're going we're gonna to do those uh, in short order at the end of the message. But uh, we need to talk about forgiveness. And this passage really lends itself to four basic principles of forgiveness. Forgive, principle number one, forgiveness is commanded by God. Forgiveness is commanded by God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 15, another C, <laughs> Colossians, not First or Second Corinthians. Here's what Paul writes. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, God has chosen you to be the holy people he loves. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? He's saying that to the, Coloss- the church at Colossae. He's also saying it to the church at Corinth. Okay? Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves. In other words, put on tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's a, in Janine's prayer, that's what we need during the next 12 months of the political year, right? We need to put on 
tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Because most of those politicians and most of the pundits on television, they're not Christ followers. They haven't sold off. So they're going to do some weird stuff out there. We've got to figure out how to be tenderhearted towards them and loving towards them. Verse 13, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Did you see what that says? Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. But what if they don't ask for forgiveness? What if they don't make amends? Didn't say anything about that, okay? He said, forgive. Above all, oh, I've got to finish that. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Why should you forgive somebody that really hurt you? Why should you forgive somebody, a girl that was abused by her father? Why should you forgive your husband who committed adultery? Why should you do that? Because God forgave you. Because God forgave you. Of all your sins, known and unknown, private, secret, otherwise, because God forgave you. Let me finish that off. Make allowance for each other's faults, verse 13, and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Forgiveness is commanded by God. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, if you feel like it. It's not if everything falls into place and everybody asks you to be forgiven and to make amends and all that. You're commanded to forgive. Why? Because that's going to bind you up. That's going to put a chain around you. It's not going to hurt the person, right? But it's going to kill you if you stay bound up with those chains. Forgiveness is commanded by God. The second principle is this. Forgiveness is commended by God. The word commend, to entrust, to deliver, to commit, to assign. God commends us, assigns us the responsibility, listen, the privilege of forgiving others on his behalf. The privilege of forgiving others on his behalf. Now, we, we are not a Catholic church, so we don't have confession where the priest forgives your sins. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I don't have the power to forgive your sins. But I do have this power, and so do you as a Christ follower. You have the power to, in the name of Jesus, declare that your sins are forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can't tell you how many times, whether in a sermon or in my office, I was able to say to somebody who had just prayed and confessed their sins, God does not lie on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the work and the authority of Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? You can do that with people that come to you, and you can't forgive their sins, but you can declare their sins are forgiven if they've followed 1 John 1, 9. 2 Corinthians 2, 7 says, Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. God commends this act to you. Otherwise, he may be overcome with discouragement. God's entrusting us with his forgiveness to pour out his forgiveness and lavish it upon others. What a great privilege that is that we have as Christ followers. I forgive you, God says. Will you then forgive others? It'll set you free. So God commands us to forgive. 
Forgiveness is number two, commended by God. And number three, forgiveness confounds Satan. You want to confound Satan? You want to trip him up? You want to see him have a bad day? Forgive your enemy. Forgive that person that's really hurt you. It's easy to forgive somebody, you know, in your family maybe they say something wrong. Oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Of course you're forgiven. But there's a lot of stuff that's really hard to forgive. You want to confound Satan? Forgive your enemy. Christianity is the only religion that teaches us to forgive our enemies. The only religion that does that. Satan is at work in tempting you to sin. But he's also at work in tempting you to not forgive. He is what I call the sin whisperer right? But hear this, ever, even more so, Satan loves when a believer chooses not to forgive. That's his greatest victory. The Bible says, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, that the, Satan wants to outsmart us by using unforgiveness. Every time he gets a believer to not forgive, he outsmarts you and he wins. Satan is perplexed, confused, confounded and exasperated by forgiveness. What's the best example of that? Jesus on the cross. So just imagine what Satan was thinking when he was observing this. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders are all against Jesus and they somehow get the Roman government to sign off on crucifixion, okay? Yeah, this guy is a troublemaker. Let's just... Crucify him, put him out of the way. So Satan is dancing. He is about to, guess what? He is about to kill God. He is about to watch God die on a cross. He is happy and he is dancing and everything's good. And then two things happen, actually three things. The first thing that happens is that Jesus, there's two thieves, They weren't thieves, they were criminals. We don't know what their crime was. It was worse than being a thief, by the way. You weren't crucified for being a thief. So they were really bad, whatever they did, probably murdered. Anyway, so these two guys, one of them has this conversation with Jesus and said, man, you don't deserve to be here, man. I do. I'm a sinner. He basically confesses, I'm a sinner. And after a little conversation, Jesus (laughs) says to this guy, today you will be with me in paradise. Satan goes, say what? He's one of my prizes. Satan says, my job, I know I can't change the course of history, but I can take as many people to hell with me as I possibly can. That's my job. That's what I do. And this guy was all wrapped up and you're telling me that you can't. So why would you forgive that guy? So Satan's upset. And then Jesus looks out over the Pharisees and the Romans and he looks at Peter's gone, but he probably sees Peter somewhere hiding and lurking. And, and Jesus says, this is what Becca told us, right? But, uh, you know, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Satan goes, no, no. That's the worst thing that could happen. And everything turned And then when Jesus died, and the cross, and, and, and the curtain was torn in two, and the earth trembled, and the Tears from God came down to earth. And, ever, and this very best scenario that Satan could possibly imagine is turned into the worst disaster ever. Satan is defeated. If you want to confound Satan, you forgive your enemy. Principle number four. Forgiveness is cooperating with God to redeem the world. 
Forgiveness is cooperating with God to redeem the world. We are never more like God than when we forgive. So um, most of you know parts of our story. Uh, This coming year, however long it takes, you'll hear more just because I try to be as transparent with you as possible. But um, October 12th, uh, 1989, our son Tyler had his 10th birthday. One week later, October 19th, uh, 1989, he was riding his bicycle, hit by an automobile and was killed. Okay, that was, uh, that's history. In fact, last October, we celebrated his 40th birthday, you know, in memoriam. Well, the scenario was, he was, we were up in the foothills of uh, Green Mountain, looking out over Denver, 10 miles west of Denver. And uh, there was hills all where we lived. And he was riding his bike, coming down. It was late in the afternoon, five-ish, October sun, right over the hill. And a 16-year-old boy, Bobby Vanek, was driving home. Tyler was coming down this way, and Bobby just, even though he couldn't see because he was blinded by the sun, he was going slow, 20 miles an hour, but just kind of rolled through the intersection and hit Tyler, and he was killed. And uh, we were devastated, as you would expect, and uh, our lives changed forever. And uh, that was one of the triggers that later got me in trouble. And and, uh, man, those first couple of days were, uh, Sherry wake me up in the middle of the night, and she said, I demand that you show me in Scripture where Tyler is right now. So guess where we look? First Corinthians 5, right? Anyway, so third day, Sherry wakes up. She said, There's not, honey, we have to do. I said, what's that? She said, we've got to go to Bobby Vanek's house and we've got to forgive him. I said, sister, go in peace. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to, but it made a lot of sense to actually um, uh, believe and live what we say, right? hard, believe and live what we say. So the next day, uh, uh, Bobby's, uh, he had a couple of siblings and he was 16, a great student, went to a private Catholic high school. His dad was a physician, good family, good solid family. We got to know them well, but uh, we went up there and they were, of course, we called in advance and they were terrified. I mean, what are they going to say? we want to protect our son, but we really don't want to protect him from whatever they're going to say because he needs to hear. And what's going to happen? And we came in and Sherry spoke and he said, we just came to forgive Bobby. And she wraps her arm around the 16-year-old boy. The whole family was already weeping when we were there. And we just held him and prayed over him and, uh, and forgave him. And um, changed everything. Changed our lives in a great respect, but it really changed their lives. I mean, later, Bobby um, became a great student. He went to med school, became a doctor, got married. His firstborn son, you know what's coming, right, was named Tyler. And um, this idea of forgiveness is not just a good Christian idea. It's the very heartbeat of who God is. He said, "I, I gave my son's life so that you would be forgiven. And I want you to forgive in the same way. Those are not just words. Those are not just platitudes. That is the heartbeat of God. Forgiveness is cooperating with God to redeem the world. This is God's word on forgiveness. Forgiveness is commanded by God. It's commended by God. Forgiveness can confound Satan. And forgiveness is cooperating with the Father to redeem the world. Forgiveness is life-giving 
Now, armed with these principles from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, how do we live this out? Now, I wanted to close this message today with some very practical things that you can take home. This is where you can take some, scribble some notes quickly because we'll go through them very quickly. But, but I imagined, because I've done this when I've heard sermons on forgiveness, I imagined what some of your um, thoughts are. Complaints, maybe? Questions? Yeah, but what about this? Well, what about that? What about that girl that was abused by her father? What about that young woman that was raped? What about that wife that her husband committed adultery? These are egregious, life-altering things. What about those things, Pastor Duane? How do we forgive that? Let me offer you from Scripture, and we don't have time to go through all of the Scriptures, but 10 things that forgiveness is not. Okay? Here we go. Forgiveness is not approving of or diminishing sin. It's not saying it's okay. Because sin is not okay. And when someone hurts you, it's not okay. And you're not to diminish it. Or say, well, it doesn't matter because it does matter. Okay, people need to confess. They need to deal with their sin in that. It's not your job was one who forgives to say it is diminished or it just is okay. No big deal. It is a big deal. That's why God had to send his son Jesus to die for it. His sin is a big deal. Your sin, someone who sinned against you, it is a big deal. Jesus died for that. So forgiveness is not approving of or diminishing sin. Number two, forgiveness is not enabling sin. A wife is beaten by her husband. An addict lives in the house. Forgiveness is not enabling. It's not saying, it's okay. He only beat me semi-severely this time. No, no. Forgiveness, you forgive him, but you get out of that house. Right? Forgiveness is not enabling sin. Number three, forgiveness is not denying a wrongdoing. Well, I'll just forget about it. It's no big deal. I've moved on. Forgiveness is, yeah, it just doesn't really matter. It does matter. Forgiveness is not denying a wrongdoing. Number four, forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. I'll forgive as soon as they say they're sorry. I'll forgive as soon as they make amends and do the right thing. Nope, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible commands you to forgive. That's the way God has forgiven us, commands you to forgive. Because when you do, you let go of that grievance. You let go of the right to hold them accountable. You let go of that. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. It's simply saying, Father, I forgive them. It's saying to them, I forgive you, even if they don't receive it, even if they don't make amends, even if they don't say, I'm sorry. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. Forgiveness is not, number five, forgetting. That's a Christian myth. Forgive and forget. As Becca told us in the children's message, God is the only one who can forgive and forget, right? We forgive, that's our job, but we don't forget. We'd like to, we try to, time helps with that, but forgiving and forgetting are not the same thing. You can't. A little girl that was abused, molested, somebody that was abandoned or beaten or abused or cheated on, the pain is diminished by time, God forgets it, thank God. I will remember their sin no more in Jeremiah. But it's not that. He has, that God has a bad memory. 
It's that he chooses not to be, to interact with us based on what we've done, but based on what Christ has done, right? Let me say that again. It's not, an, it's not God chooses not to interact with us based on what we've done, but on what Christ has done. That's why he can forgive and forget. Forgive, yes. Forget doesn't happen a lot. Number six, forgiveness is not ceasing to feel the pain. Forgiveness is not ceasing to feel the pain. Sherry and I think of our son's death and we still feel the pain. Why didn't Bobby, when the sun was right in his eyes, why didn't he just stop until he could see? Why didn't he slow down? I mean, all of these what ifs, all of these scenarios. No, forgiveness is not ceasing to feel the pain. We still grieve the loss of our 10-year-old boy. It still hurts, yes, but forgiven, absolutely. Number seven, forgiveness is not a one-time event. And that's true because many times sin against you is not a one-time event. Sometimes it happens over and over and over again. Sometimes because we are weak in our faith, we simply have to say, Lord, I forgive. And as soon as we say that, it wells up inside of us some anger, some viciousness, and Lord, I just want to release that. I forgive that person. I forgive them. I release them to your judgment. I release them to your, uh, you know, to do what they, you need to do. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. Sometimes that person keeps sinning. Sometimes that memory keeps coming back and we need to forgive over and over and over again. Number eight, this is really important. Forgiveness is not neglecting justice. You can forgive someone and call the police and have them arrested. You can testify in court. But I thought you forgave me. I did. But you committed a crime, you've broken the law, and there are consequences for that. Stolen money, you pay it back. You lied, you tell the truth. You hurt someone, you make amends. You can forgive and still pursue and should pursue justice. Number nine, forgiveness is not trusting. Now, I get this one all the time from people. Well, my dad molested me when I was a little girl, and he said he was sorry, so now can he babysit my kids? No, he cannot. No, keep your mother-in-law away from him, right? No, because there is a time when trust is ruined. Trust is lost quickly, and it's built back slowly. Take your time with this. Maybe there will be reconciliation, but right now it's dangerous. And so forgiveness is not trusting. As your pastor, if someone hurts you egregiously, egregiously, forgive them, but you build up that trust slowly. Let the fruit of repentance be seen. Some people are never to be trusted again, especially when it comes to children. And then the last thing is this. This is really important. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. I wish it always was, but it's not. I'll tell you why. Forgiveness takes one person, you. You forgive. You let go. You let those chains fall away. Repentance takes one person. You do your work of repentance in your own life. Reconciliation takes two. If the other person is not ready or is not 
you know, done, make, made amends or done the right thing, you don't have to have a relationship with them. You can forgive them and still let them go. But he's my father. Yes, but he really hurt you. Forgive him, but sometimes you have to say, I forgive you, but stay away. Because there's been no, you know, acts of repentance. Repentance takes one. Forgiveness takes one. Reconciliation takes two. So there are 10 things that forgiveness is not. I'd like to close the message this morning by helping you walk through a a fearless moral inventory. Forgiveness matters so much. It's the very crux of God's heart and the very tipping point of Jesus' ministry on the earth. Forgiveness was everything to do with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Forgiveness matters. Jesus gave his life for it. This matters in churches. Uh, I've never been to a church. I've served five churches as the lead pastor. I've never been to a church where there wasn't um, interpersonal conflict between some of the people or the leadership or the pastor and the people or some combination of that. And a church will always be stalled when those things aren't dealt with, when there is a lack of forgiveness and a lack of repentance. So it matters in the church. It matters in your families. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, well, I, you know, I don't have a relationship with my son or my daughter or my mother or my father. And, and, and sometimes that can't be helped because of some of the things we've said. But sometimes we just need to take the first step of, of forgiveness and taking a step towards them. And sometimes there's this root of bitterness in our own hearts. So I'd like to ask you as we walk through this fearless moral inventory, if you will, to close your eyes. The spirit of prayer and meditation. I'd like to pose three questions. And each question I pose, I would just invite you to open your heart up to Jesus. And maybe there's um, someone that comes to your mind or there's a situation that comes to your mind or something that the Lord wants you to deal with. So the first question is this. Is there someone you need to forgive? A family member? A church brother or sister? Someone you work with? Someone from the past? Whether there's been reconciliation or not, who do you need to forgive? Question number two. Is there someone you have hurt Someone you need to ask for their forgiveness. It's very clear in Scripture that it's our responsibility to make amends. Is there someone that you need to ask for their forgiveness? The third question is this. Allow the Holy Spirit to just really speak to you. For some of you, this might be painful. Is there someone who is far away or they're dead or unreachable for some reason that you need to forgive. Father, speak to our hearts now if that's true for any of us.